welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, we're really excited to be joined by Sehun Orkan Sakali, who is a lecturer in economics at King's College London Business School. His research focuses on the implications of cross-cultural interactions between different ethnic and religious groups. So welcome to the show, Sehun. Hi, Lev. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So you co-authored a paper where you were, you were looking at the question of how asylum policies deter Jewish migration out of, out of Nazi Germany. And the overarching question you looked at was how do individuals facing persecution and conflict decide to, to emigrate? I guess I, I, first I would like to start by, by asking, why this paper now? Why is it relevant today? Yeah, so our starting point was that uh, having observed everything that has been going on with the Syrian crisis and uh, uh, to a certain degree the, the backlash towards asylum seekers, we decided that studying this question at this moment will be relevant. And then it was a joint combination of our interests. I interested in uh, persecution and its effects, and uh, my co-author Johannes is a, a German economic historian, and our other co-author uh, Matthias also uh, heavily worked on conflict. So we thought this uh, question would be very interesting to study. And luckily, we managed to get access to an individual level data set on the migration decisions of Jews that was uh, provided to us by the German Federal Archives. And this allowed this study to come to being. So just to be clear, that, that data set was the, the resident list? Yes, it is a resident list by uh, the German Federal Archives. Tell me or tell us what, what is in this resident list. It's, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yes, so this uh, data set was initially compiled to, uh, for insurance purposes. So in 2004, uh, the first version of the data set was compiled to compensate for Jewish descendants of the persecuted people. And then the uh, government, uh, German government, they wanted to have a comprehensive list of uh, all Jews that lived in the Germany in the 1930s. So they asked uh, the, uh, the German Federal Archives to continue this work. And this is still an ongoing process. So the idea is to have a list of all Germans, uh, Jews, that were present in Germany at any point between uh, 1933 and 1945. And it basically provides biographic information for all people, their first names, family names, their birthplaces, uh, and when they were born, their last uh, known place of residence. But for our study, more importantly, it provides information on whether people migrated, where they migrated, when they migrated, and not just their first destination, in some instances, their second destination, third destination. And if they didn't migrate, it's also like information on whether they were deported. And for some people also about their fate in a text format, like whether they survived, how they survived, uh, so on and so forth. And on top of that, there's one more information that we use in the data to, in this data, to say something about individual persecution, which is the detainment status of people, whether they were at some point arbitrarily detained by the uh, German government. Now, you are, your group is one of the first groups to analyze the data quantitatively. Yes, it is correct. So this data, data set has been provided by the German Federal Archives to a few museums 
for documenting the uh, history of Jews as a remembering project of remembrance. And then we uh, asked for the first time uh, to have access to this data to uh, make a uh, qualitative study. So let's begin to, to start to, to figure out why people make the decision to out-migrate. You wanted to, you wanted to reconstruct social networks. That seems like almost an impossible at, task. How did you do that? The idea was that by anecdotal evidence, if you look at like you know surveys of let's say Syrian asylum seekers, how they took the uh, decision to migrate out, you see that one key uh, information source for them is like you know family and friends. So there's this infor- informal uh, information channel that is at play. The economic literature has focused on diaspora networks. How like you know having someone that you know in a destination country uh, makes you more likely to move to that, to that place. So given this line of thinking, what we said was to study the effect of social networks uh, in this setting and how social networks uh, affected the migration decisions. So what we did was given this rich, rich set of information and data set, what we know is where people are born and when they were born. Starting from this point, we, we said, Okay, given that the importance of community in the Jewish life in Germany, so we said we can have a tentative social community network by using this data set. And what we ended up doing, we looked at people who were born in the same town and who are similar in terms of age. So people, uh, we stipulate that people would know through interactions in in school or in the community or in the synagogue, people who are five years younger or five years older than themselves. So this is how we uh, operationalize the concept of social network. And then what we do, we look at uh, the persecution of individuals' peers and how that conveys a level of information to a person and how that affects person's decision to migrate. So we call this uh, the threat effect. Mm -hmm. So observing, even though you yourself are not persecuted. You could have friends who are living in different towns and they're persecuted. And then you hear about these from your network. And as a result, you decide to migrate out. And on the other hand, linking with the, more with the migration literature, then we can look at, by looking at where your friends are migrated or what fraction of your friends migrated, that also acts as a, a second layer, okay? So depending on where your friends migrated, it will serve as a pull factor. So this is the, the diaspora effect that is well-documented in the literature. So by, let's say you have a, for example, your friend Aaron moved to the United States, and this would increase your likelihood to move to the United States because Aaron can help you with the visa application process. And then once you reach the US, uh, help you with settling or easing, like, you know, finding a job, so allowing you to like, you know, integrate better. So it, in a way, like, you know, increases your utility, well-being of living in the U.S. in the future. But on the other hand, if you have many friends who are all migrating out, so what we postulate, which is new in our study, is that this would reduce the well-being of people who are staying back. So if in a, a mass migration setting, like the case of German Jews in the 1930s or, let's say, Syrian refugees uh, today, what ends up happening is that given that your social network is shrinking at home, 
this is reducing your well-being at home because there's less ethnic amenities, uh, there's less social interaction, so less well-being overall. So this also acts as a push factor for people to migrate out uh, from where they live in their home countries. And this is what we call in the paper the uh, exodus effect. Okay, so just let me restate. If you are uh, in a synagogue and uh, in a small town and your buddy comes in and tells you that they've been detained by the Nazis, by the police, that is one factor which will make you more likely to leave Germany. You were able to, to quantify that, right? Yeah, exactly. So what we see in this data set is uh, the detainment, individual detainment status of people when they were detained and for how long. So we use this uh, as a way to like, you know, observe individual persecution, compute what what is the persecution rate among one's uh, peers. Right. And then there are other factors which will determine how likely you are to to emigrate. And, and one of them is if, if, if already many people in your community have left, you become socially isolated. And, and if you own a business, nobody you know goes to your business anymore. And so then that will make you also more likely to emigrate. Yeah, exactly. And then depending on taking the decision to emigrate, so where your friends are located also acts as a way to pull you to different locations. So depending on where your friends have left, so you're more likely to go in those. So, so you're more likely to go to those countries where your friends have gone. You, you wrote that in 1938, or by 1938, only 30% of German Jews had emigrated. That seems, that seems pretty low, you know, as we, we start the persecution in, in 33. So I'm wondering two things. One, why do you think the numbers were only, you know, 30%? And where did most of the German Jews end up, end up settling? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. So for us, this was the starting point. So having observed those low numbers, and given the language the uh, Nazi regime used and the persecution that intensified over the years, we were puzzled by the fact that so many of them uh, had stayed. This is why, like, you know, we hypothesized that there are two reasons behind this. One of them is that to a certain degree we can uh, quantify is the lack of awareness of the level of persecution. So in a way, like, you know, underestimating the actual threat to people's lives. Another factor is uh, the immigration policies of the potential destination countries. The fact that even though uh, Jews wanted to emigrate, there were some frictions that didn't allow them to emigrate as freely as uh, they would like to otherwise. Of course, on top of that, there's a third factor, which is individual level of wealth. To be able to emigrate, you had to like you know pay some flight tax to be able to leave the country and to apply for visa and for all the, all those legal processes. That also played a role, but in our data set, unfortunately, we cannot observe individual income or wealth. Mm-hmm. So that is one part that we abstract from. And then where do most of the, the Jews go? Uh, so it's quite interesting. Most of them, everyone has this image in their mind about the, the sandwich uh, ship that was uh, not allowed entry into the US. So it, it feels as if US was more opposed to migration than other countries because of that image. But in fact, most of the Jews ended up in, uh, in the United States. And then after that, it's UK, that was one of the major destinations. But something to note about the patterns of immigration is that it changed uh, over time. There's quite early years, uh, Jews were going more to the nearby European countries, such as France, the Netherlands. But if you look at the data, 
So, for example, half of the Jews that ended up in Netherlands after the annexation of Netherlands by Germany ended up in concentration camps. And similarly for France, uh, one third of the Jews that initially emigrated uh, to France ended up in concentration camps. So over time, as uh, Germany became more aggressive in Europe, escaping within Europe as a way to safeguard yourself against the the regime proved to be inefficient. So what we see is over time, especially uh, after the start of the war, people tend to, Jews tend to migrate uh, more towards Latin American countries compared to the European countries. And then something that stands out is that Shanghai, free, free city of Shanghai, as of 1939-40, becomes one of the top destination uh, locations. And it's quite interesting to observe it in the raw data because, and then you ask yourself, okay, how is it that such a small place uh, attracted so many Jews? And then the answer to that is very simple. So at that time, Shanghai had a visa-free travel policy for people coming from Europe. So Jews trying to escape didn't face any visa hurdles uh, escaping while trying to escape to Shanghai. And as a result, Shanghai became one of the top destinations towards the especially after the Kristallnacht and pogroms of 1938 and the start of the war. Very interesting. And do you have any sense of what happened to these Jews once the Japanese occupied Shanghai? Oh, I, it's a good question. It would be interesting to see. I have, I have no idea. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, no, I, I, will, I will pursue that. Um, and then very quickly, um, Sehan, are you, are you Turkish? Yeah, I'm from Turkey. Okay. Do you have any sense of how many um, Jews ended up in Turkey? Not too many. Turkey was one of the... It's an interesting question. So I don't know uh, whether you heard about it. Turkey had uh, tried to save many Jews from Nazis, claiming that they are originally Turkish citizen. And given that Turkey was a neutral country at the time, so they managed to save some uh, Turkish people. So from the Ottoman times, there was a law called the Ottoman citizenship law. And what that law, in a way, uh, not to give rise to Armenians to come back and claim, uh, make some claims in the 1920s. But what that law said is, in a way, that if you left Turkey, Ottoman Empire without a valid passport issued by the empire and change your citizenship later. So Turkey doesn't recognize the citizenship change as valid. So this was used against Armenians that became later US citizens in the sense that US made a petition for Turkey to, for, for some reclamations and Turkey eventually ended up saying that, look, by the time Armenians were in, Armenians ended up in Syria, and then from there they went to the US, but they didn't go to the US with a valid passport, got a, a citizenship through the approved way. So hence, in our eyes, they're not American citizens. So US cannot uh, make a claim for them. Mm-hmm as parts of U.S. citizens. So this was, in a way, like, you know, settled in the U.S. courts as a valid argument. But luckily, as a Turkish person, 
Turkey used the same uh, law to be able to save uh, Jews at the darkest hour. So what they ended up doing was to use the same law as long as someone had some uh, Ottoman origin, like some grandparents who were from the Ottoman Empire, they used this law to shield as many Jews as possible. Other than that, so I don't know whether you heard about the story, Albert Einstein wrote to uh, many countries, many heads of the countries, to allow for Jewish scientists. And Turkey in the 30s also participated in that. The Jewish scientists that came to Turkey in the 1930s was a very important part of the uh, nation-building process in Turkey. So, But I cannot tell you, like, you know, the exact numbers on mm-hmm. top of my head. No, but that's very interesting. And then to go back to why only 30% of the Jews in Germany are, are leaving in, in, by 1938, so some of it is that people underestimate the, the risk. And then some of it, of course, is that many countries around the world have are doing the opposite of what Turkey is doing. They, they have very restrictive policies, including the United States. And you're able to, to quantify the number of additional refugees which will enter the country if one refugee enters. And, and you say that, that for every extra refugee allowed in the U.S. in 1936, it would have increased future out-migration to all destinations by 0.45 extra refugees per year. And so I imagine that is what is behind the thinking of U.S. policymakers, that they don't want to have any extra refugees. Is that part of it? Yeah, part of it is like, you know, to a certain degree, facing the cost that they think should be shared internationally. And part of it is due to simply anti-Semitism, the fact that people don't like having more Jews around. So it's it's quite interesting. Coming back to your original question. So we know as a fact that it was due to a certain degree misperception about the level of threat, because until 1938, the quota of the US, immigration quota of the US for German people coming from Germany and Austria was not filled. So there were about, the quota was around 23, 24,000 people. This was not filled until Kristallnacht. So after Kristallnacht, uh, the night of the broken glass and the white uh, pogroms of the 1938. So it became obvious to all Jews in Germany that it reached a tipping point. At that point, people started scrambling for their lives and there were about 300,000 visa applications to the US. But up to that point, there was like, you know, free room to go that people did not take on. But what happened at that point in the US, for example, is that there was a a proposal in the Senate to allow for 10,000 Jewish refugee orphans to be admitted in 1938 and 1939 Addition, in addition to the quota. There were some public posts taken, which we document in the paper, in January 1939, just a few months after the, uh, the pogroms. And there you see 65% uh, of the population, US population, was not ready to admit 10,000 uh, refugee orphan uh, Jews. So that speaks to the prevalent anti-Semitism. But as you say, on the other hand, there was this, uh, the cost, perceived cost of receiving refugees and hosting uh, refugees. 
And to that extent, in 1938, just before the 1938 November programs, there was a conference held in Avian in France, just across the Swiss border. And there, 36 countries came together. And these are like, you know, a mix of Northern, Northern American countries like Canada, United States, and then some South American countries, all these potential destination countries that uh, we document in the paper, Uruguay, Argentine, European countries, including Hungary, uh, United Kingdom, France, all the uh, major destination countries. And these countries in just before the pogroms couldn't came to an agreement about how to admit refugees and how to allocate them across countries. The only country that allowed uh, to take additional refugees as a result of this uh, conference was Dominican Republic. So just to sum up, it was a fear of facing the cost and lack of international coordination in terms of how to uh, share that burden. Yeah, so interesting that the, the DR was the only country. And I, I learned that part of the reason that uh, Trujillo allowed that was because he wanted to, quote unquote, whiten the population in DR and thought that European Jews would be good for that. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about now some of the things that those countries could have done in order to make it easier for Jews in Germany to emigrate. Uh, for example, you, you write in your paper about work restrictions for visas. Could you talk about that and, and some other of the policies that could have could have been implemented and what kind of quantitative effect they would have had? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. And this was one of the points that we cared about, really cared about uh, from the beginning of the project. And to see like you know, under which other potential counterfactual imaginary circumstances, more lives could have been saved. Because staying in Germany to a certain degree, like if you had not converted uh, from Judaism and married to a non-Jewish person, it literally meant uh, death. So given given that, we wanted to uh, see what kind of policies could have been implemented and uh, would have saved more lives. And if you think about the historical period, what's so surprising is the fact that in 1935, Nuremberg, Nuremberg laws are passed. And after that, Jews are no longer legal citizens of a major country. So with everything that we, had, we have witnessed over the long 21st century, for a modern mind, this is shocking that it didn't ring a very strong bell to all uh, potential nations in the world. You see... In a way, like, you know, when this happens, if that happened today, as openly as it happened back then, there would be a sense of, all right, Jews are at a risk group and they should be granted to the best possible some refugee or asylum seeker status. But the way we see it, if you look at migration policies at the time, is that Jews were, even then, treated as if they are any other migrant group without any special treatment of refugees that would be today. Given this, like, you know, in hindsight, surprise of how after Nuremberg laws, nothing changed. We asked this question, what if countries remove the work restrictions for the Jews? For example, many countries required people to find a job, people to, or like, you know, didn't give them 
any work visa upon arrival. So what we did is to collect data on uh, the migration policies of the countries towards Jews. And you see that like, you know, some countries had no restriction for work for Jewish people. Some countries allowed the visa, like you know, work rights for uh, Jewish migrants, but these were really restrictive and difficult to obtain. And some countries didn't give uh, any work rights at all. So one potential question then we ask is that what if there was no restriction, such restriction for uh, Jewish uh, refugees that would have migrated out? And when we ask the question this way, we find that removing these work restrictions would have increased Jewish migration between 15 to 27%. And another question that we ask is, so this was one of the things that were discussed in the Avian Conference in 1938. So whether countries should uh, reduce the cost of migration by giving some travel subsidies. So in another exercise, what we tried to do, we have again collected data on uh, the ticket prices from Germany to overseas destinations by using a, a very interesting source from the 1938. So in 1938, there was a book published called Philo Atlas in Germany. And this was literally to give information to Jews about uh, potential destination places, how many Jews are living there, what are the conditions, and what are the ticket prices to these countries. So there we asked the question, what if half of the travel cost was subsidized? How many Jews uh, would have been saved? We find that again, like uh, migration would have increased by uh, five to 10 percent. It's amazing that you found that book and it's it's so valuable that you did that work. And it it just drives home the point that there's so much more that could have been done. The question is, do you have any sense of why more Jews didn't respond after, after Nuremberg in 1935 by, by emigrating. Did, did you come across anything in your research that, that indicated why? Yeah, it's, it's, it speaks to the title of the paper. It's, you know, the title of the paper is The Refugees' Dilemma. So knowing all, all we know and the analysis we have done, it's still quite puzzling that people didn't react as much as we today expect them to. To have. I think it's the very fact that those ties that binds a person to what they feel home, even though the home doesn't seem to love them, like them anymore, it's a difficult face and accept. If you read the letters all the time, and even like you know, after the first boycotts of 1933, those who observed them were really terrorized. And those who observed them wanted to leave. But even when they were like, you know, sending letters to their family members that are living abroad, they were not as open and clear about certain things that they were observing out of here. So to a certain degree, people were either not observing it or not enough informed about them. But again, yet the question is like, you know, in after being stripped, out of their citizenship in 1935, they should have guessed, they would have guessed that protected status that was so, so fragile 
to me, like, you know, I don't have a very clear answer, but observing, like, you know, the migration patterns, 10% of the people that left in 1933 came back by 1935. So people were feeling this, like, you know, very strong sense of belonging and attachment to the country. And I think that is, like, when we hear about the right-wing people's arguments about refugees and some like, you know, for example, the way it is framed in the France by Marine Le Pen's party, as if these people are cowards instead of fighting, they like, you know, uh, left their country. It is such a dehumanizing discourse that is not allowing to people imagine how difficult of a choice it is for people to leave their home. You know, at the end of your paper, you talk about the fact that we have social media and, and cell phone cameras, and we can really document the horrors and the difficulties that people go through in their countries, and that this should provoke a, a rise in the, the number of migrants and refugees, because people are, are very aware of the risks that they face by staying at home. And I think we've seen that. But at the same time, you know, when you talk about the, the Evian Conference and the United States being very reluctant to take Jewish refugees, you know, we saw the, the last administration in the United States really restrict refugees. The, if you look at the polls in the United States, there are a great number of people who are not interested in taking people from, you know, Yemen or Syria or Eritrea, all places or Central America where there are really terrible things going on. And so I guess it just it doesn't surprise me, it's depressing, but it doesn't surprise me that um, in the 1930s, the United States also restricted refugees. To speak to that, we also like in the paper document to kind of like, you know, make the argument salient that this still is an issue. We also have some polls from the US before the Trump administration taken in 2015. And there, a very similar question about was asked about orphan, Muslim orphan refugees from Syria, whether 10,000 of them should be admitted to the US or not. And depressingly, what you see is that, again, only about 60% of the population was saying no to that. In a way, I think it is important to have studies like ours to bring the policy choices, how they affect people into a light. Because if we don't have these type of discussions within three generations, it looks like we are having a, a reset on our line of thinking. Like the, the people who witnessed it in the 40s remember, and then their children remember a bit more. But by the time like that generation passes away, grandchildren of those people who witnessed those horrors seem to forget. That's why it's really important to have an ongoing conversation about former historical case studies and about the responsibility of recipient countries in times of such crisis.